This podcast was recorded on Monday, August 13th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very interesting guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who is the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, LLC. Welcome, Danielle. So happy to be here today. Yes, thank you. So we've been followers of your work uh, for a long period of time. You put out a lot of daily pieces out there. I think nowadays it's called the Daily Feather subscription-based for our, our uh, listeners out there. You did have for a long time, I think you still publish it, Money Strong. Is that correct? Yes, I still publish a weekly. I've published for over three years every week. That is a much pricier subscription that went subscription last August. So the Feather was rolled out to have a, a retail reach to it. It's just $25 a month. So it's been pretty tremendous. That's a good value for the amount of work you put into that and the content we see there too. So maybe uh, for our listeners too that aren't familiar with you or uh, haven't seen you on CNBC and the likes, maybe you can give us a little bit of background about how you got started in the business before you had one of those infamous jobs at the Fed. I actually started off at a firm that's no longer with us called Donaldson, Lufkin & Jenrette in New York, DLJ. It was a very interesting time to be there during the internet boom, which ended up with the dot-com collapse. We were subsequently bought out by Credit Suisse, and I ended up signing a non-compete and agreeing to leave the industry for a bit and ended up somehow, some way, writing for a living about the financial markets and receiving a phone call from one Richard Fisher at the Dallas Federal Reserve. And he asked me to come work for him and cover the financial markets. And I accepted. And for the better part of a decade, there I was on the inside, the bureaucrat I never thought I would be. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You, you mentioned or used the word bureaucrat there. What is the difference between your role at DLJ when you were working on Wall Street and assuming that role of a bureaucrat, as you've called yourself inside the Fed, at the Dallas Fed? I hate cliches, but it was certainly day and night. The way I wrote about it in my memoir, Fed Up, was that it was trying to compare kind of raw steak, which was what the trading floor used to feel like when at lunchtime, when Smith and Walensky's, the big steakhouse, would make deliveries, you'd kind of smell that raw meat out on the trading floor and you'd feel that vibe and, and the energy. And I compare that to kind of a hospital meets a library, which is what the Fed was. It was very <laughs> quiet, very sterile, not a lot of energy and hype. I will tell the folks out there that Smith and Walensky's is the one place I've actually have been served a raw steak in my life. And it's an interesting story, but um, it's something we shouldn't tell here since we have you. But uh, comparing the, the library and the hospital, so is it just the quiet nature? Is it the amount of research? There's kind of this timelessness to it. How do you describe kind of the day-to-day -day inner workings? I mean, we only get to see kind of the inner workings of the Fed eight times a year at the FOMC meetings. Can, can you talk about the day-to-day -day activities that transpire when you're inside the Fed? Well, they're more like month to month. It's interesting. If you can imagine when I was on Wall Street, we, as long as the stock market was open, you pretty much manned your, your station. You didn't really leave in the middle of the day. And 
it was always fascinating to me that around 1130 or so, they would line up and go down to the executive dining room, you know, some of the top research analysts, and they'd kind of wander back around 130. And that was always just kind of surreal to me. And I worked for the director of research, who was nearly a 40-year veteran at the Fed. And he came around to my way of thinking by the time he retired. And he commented to me that his biggest regret of having an entire career at the Fed was that the research associates under him ended up doing a continuation of their dissertation research in their career at the Fed, as opposed to really branching out and doing research that applied to making monetary policy, to setting interest rates. I was there studying the the housing crisis as it was blowing up all around me. And there were people who were doing research studies on subjects that really didn't pertain to the matters of the day at all. It was quite surreal to see how non-productive, unproductive, and that's why I called it a bureaucracy that the Fed is. And that remains to this day, one of the chief criticisms of the institution is that there's simply not enough research done in real time to help Jay Powell and all of the leaders at the Fed make decisions in real time. Because as we know, that's how markets function. And that's how economies function. Something like an Argentina or a Turkey can blow up overnight. And it doesn't really help if monetary policymakers to understand that dynamic, if people are making sure that they can seasonally adjust information that's frankly irrelevant to what's happening. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because you used the word dissertation, perhaps question the relevance of some of the timeliness of pieces. Is, is some of that lack of relevance perhaps because it's there's a sense of maybe a tenure if you make it akin to education. They're, these guys are somewhat like professors in there. They can't be kicked out of their positions. As long as you've written a paper that gets accepted by a prestigious economics periodical of some kind, which is manned by people who also have been associated with the Fed or at the Fed, I mean, it's, it's extremely incestuous. But really, the measure of your value to the institution is based upon parameters that, again, don't have much to do with in my view, what a central bank should be doing. These people should be making sure that the individuals around the Federal Open Market Committee that meet eight times a year, that they have all the information that they need on hand to make decisions to steer the economy. Not that they're able to brag to their peers that they've had their white paper accepted at XYZ, which is more prestigious than their staff paper, which was, which was rejected. I mean, it really is pretty remarkable to be in an institution where there are almost 800 PhDs and probably a handful that are really doing the work for American taxpayers that needs to be done. Well, this sounds almost like a, a criticism of, of government jobs in general, right? They overpromise the benefit to society. They underdeliver that benefit over time and, and usually overestimate the cost. But if you're talking about there's only a handful of PhDs that have relevance, how do we substantiate this institution to continue forward? I mean, we always assume, you know, as an outsider, at least my assumption is that these folks are working on the effects of monetary policy and their implications and looking at trying to better predict inflation and likes to set those policies. But it sounds like it's just really an extension of academia and just seeing who can brag the most about which econometric model got uh, accepted to the journals today. Again, in a million years, I was a producer. And I treasured myself as I learned to be treasured on Wall Street, which is what have you done for me lately? 
it was just a bizarre place for me to be. But in a million years, I never thought that I would take two and a half years of my life to write a book. But I was so infuriated by the time I left the Fed because I'm a taxpayer and just at the egregious overlap of responsibilities that I did. I took two and a half years away from my family to write a book about how the institution's not some kind of a you know, tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist banking organization run by people, all of whose last names, you know, are Rothschild. That's really not what the Fed is. There was nothing mysterious about it, but there was definitely something that was so wasteful that I felt it strongly enough to write a book that continues to sell very well because it, every step we get closer to the next financial crisis, the more the book explains how if people know that something is wrong and they do nothing to address it, how very debilitating that can be for an economy. And we're watching some of that begin to unfold today. Yeah. And it was a very good book. And for our listeners out there, Ms. Booth's book is called Fed Up. A great title, working in the Fed into there. Uh, one of the few kind of titles out there were actually talking about the Federal Reserve and kind of the inner workings of that. So what motivated you to do that? You said as a taxpayer, you were a little disgruntled about the entity of the Fed. What was really that catalyst that, that kind of drove you over the edge? Well, it really was a moment in time. There were some papers rolling around inside the Fed that were highly relevant in 2009, 2010, that recognized that the inflation measure that the Fed uses, which is called the core PCE, probably the most lagged and broken and flawed of all inflation metrics in existence, there was a realization that it did not properly capture the asset price run up in residential real estate, in the stock market, in certain pockets of the securities markets, CDOs, CLOs, etc., so there was a, at least an internal recognition that, you know what, we've got the wrong inflation metric on our hands and it misled us. And after that determination was made, exactly nothing was done about it. There's a funny scene in Fed Up where Stanley Fisher had just arrived as vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee. Of course, he retired last year, but a world-renowned central banker, he was the godfather of central bankers. And he asked a question in his first FOMC meeting, why don't you use the headline CPI? That's certainly the inflation rate that governs my vision, my view of the buying power of the US dollar. It, it governs that of, of Americans. It governs that of my children. And you know, one very brave staffer raised their hand and said, well, if we used core CPI, our models wouldn't work. To which Jim Bullard, who is still on the FOMC, raised his hand and said, let me get this straight. This is how we make monetary policy. Crap in, crap out. That's not a matter of public record yet, but it did happen. And that was really what caused me to write Fed Up. I'm like, so they've recognized they've got a problem. They're, they're going to do approximately nothing about it. And yeah. so that was the genesis of the book. I've never heard the acronym CISO or SICO, or I will have to figure out how to, um, how to pronounce that, but that is quite interesting. So we went from this world to uh, this idea where we can manage expectations of markets by forward-looking language and trying to be explanatory of what the Fed's doing and setting expectations. What do you think about that policy, one? 
And secondly, uh, how do you think that Jerome Powell is approaching that same Fed speak and communicating with forward guidance, a la the uh, Greenspans, Bernankes, as well as, let's say, the Draghis of the world? I get the sensation that Powell thinks forward guidance is a bunch of uh, hooey. That's a technical term. I don't think he has much respect for it. And this is going to be one of the few instances beginning in January that I think more will be more. The moment he was announced as a finalist to become the next Fed chair, I immediately wrote something that said one of his first moves is going to be to implement press releases after every FOMC meeting because he's also a taxpayer. And why on earth would he continue on Bernanke's policy of having four FOMC meetings every year followed by press conferences, which effectively means that four are lame duck, i.e. taxpayer wasting. FOMC meetings, why would you hamstring yourself and not be able to make any moves at four of the eight meetings? So that was one of the first things that I said he was going to do was to get rid of that policy. And he did. So beginning in January, we have every single meeting is a live meeting. And that makes it to where you're relying less on forward guidance. And being as he has emphasized time and again, since coming on in February, truly being data dependent such that if the data change, so will policy. Right. So you mentioned data dependency. You know, one thing we observe here at Double Line is that it used to be data dependency in our viewpoint was that the data had to corroborate a rate hike, you know, with the, the Bernankes and the Yellens, there was this timidity about hiking rates and everything had to be completely aligned in order to do so. And I feel like something changed in February of 2017 when we were getting this disappointing inflation data, this disinflationary pressures. And Yellen actually came out and said, we're going to look through the data set. These are cell phone data plans. I know that was the big joke that we're causing uh, core, let's call it CPI in this case, not PC, to be pulled down. I guess she was also referring to core PC as well. However, when they looked through that, they set the expectation for the market to hike, and she did hike in March of 17 and started continuing this roughly quarterly hike they skipped last September. I feel like data dependency now is switched in its asymmetry, that the data dependency, you have to have a disappointment to derail what Mr. Powell is doing on this kind of, at least for now, as the market perceives this quarterly hiking cycle. What do you take of that argument about data dependency? I think that one of the reasons he is pushing forward with January as a, as the next potential. If the markets don't fall out of bed completely, I see a rate hike coming in January. And I worry that the window on those rate hikes is closing because as you, as we saw in the most recent core CPI report of 2.4%, core is pushing up against what symmetry would suggest would be the ceiling. And I've, they've never stated it. Lord knows all, all the financial media people in the press conferences have tried to pin Powell down. The most we've ever gotten from him is 3% is what in his mind he perceives the neutral rate as being, but he won't define symmetry. But as a former central banker, I would have to think that that would be a one and a half to two and a half percent window on the core. Are you backing into that kind of thinking to being the target with like kind of a, a headline goes between, you know, roughly plus or minus 50 basis points to core. So like a one to three type of window. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about symmetry? Yeah. People forget that Powell founded the industrials group when he was at the Carlisle. People forget that about him. They forget that like my former boss, Richard Fisher, that he's on the horn with hundreds of CEOs 
every single week. So even if it doesn't pan out in the core PCE, for example, if he's talking to all these CEOs who are like, we're getting choked, our margins are getting squeezed, it might not show up in your data set yet. But trust me when I say it's going to show up in my third quarter earnings report. Powell's taking this into context because that's how he that's how he was raised in the world of private equity. And he's not going to completely disregard anecdotal evidence coming from his worldwide army of CEOs who he's in contact with, as well as those in hedge funds and in private equity. If you read through the the June through December 2012 transcripts, he brings up his connections in the financial markets constantly. So people have to bear that in mind is that there's going to be a lot more wiggle room because Jay Powell's on planet Earth and he's been a resident of planet Earth before. He's worth between 55 and 100 million dollars and he does not need the Fed's pension to keep him safe and secure in his retirement years. And I'm sorry, but motivations matter. And for him, it's not going to be a matter of some Bernanke theory or the work that he did on the Great Depression in the case of Bernanke panning out through his career and giving him a good legacy. He's just doing it because it's the right thing to do for his country. Yeah, he's more of a pragmatist than anything. So from that, and you talk about talking to industry leaders and talking about what they're seeing in terms of costs, I assume you're kind of targeting wages there, wage inflation, as, as those in business would call it, wage growth, as the workers would call it. Uh, but let's talk about the other side of that coin that's been floated around. It's caused a lot of headline noise recently. What is the implication of tariffs here? And what does that do to the Fed in your mind? What does that do with Powell? Does he look through and say, okay, the tariffs could be a one-time spike in inflation, so there's really no change in response mechanism? Is it thinking about the impacts of decreasing global demand due to the price hikes if they're passed on, the if and, and they likely would be passed on the consumer? What is your viewpoint of how um, the possible tariffs, not the ones that have been implemented thus far, but the future ones could actually change the policy? There are two factors at work. And now I'm going to put on my central banking hat and sound like a total hypocrite. But the idea of persistence and lag both come into play. If the tariff situation is persistent enough, and it's not just going to come down to there's a fake trade war with all of our allies and a real trade war with China, if it's really something more than that, and this idea is going to persist, then we will see this start to filter through in inflation metrics and become a global phenomenon. And that will indeed change the direction of monetary policy. I would couch that in the fact that we've already seen producer prices rolling over, and that's not just a U.S. phenomenon, and the PPI tends to be much more highly correlated with global growth, and I'm hoping that Jay Powell's reading everything I write, (laughs) which I'm hoping (laughs) that Richard sends it along to him, but I'm hoping he appreciates the flattening in the yield curve really is a reflection of the tug of war that's going to be going on going forward between the lagged effects, which is your second big factor, your PPI is going to show up in your CPI with a major lag. That's going to pull up your two-year treasury. And then there's the persistence of the potential effect of tariffs, which is going to be a drag on global growth, which is going to drag down your tenure. And that's what we see today. We have steepening scares, but the longer these tariffs are out there as a threat, the bigger the governor is going to be on global growth And the more it will start to reverse what we've seen in the spike in producer prices. And he'll hear about that pretty quickly as supply chain disruptions get unraveled that started in large part because of 2017 
being the year of the natural disaster. When you talk about the curve and you're talking twos, tens and, and thinking about that, how much does the Fed look at the bond market or the stock market or, or any other kind of financial market when assessing policy or thinking about policy? Is it one of the primary factors? Is it secondary or ancillary? How is that thought of in the context of setting policy? I would say that in the aftermath of, of the financial markets, and one of the reasons that I was able to be relevant as an individual with a pulse inside the organization is that the financial markets slapped the Fed in the face. So I think that if anything, what happened a decade ago was a very unfriendly reminder that, that they disregard financial markets at their peril. Now, in the interest of speaking out of the other side of my mouth, Powell was instrumental in making sure that it was John Williams of the San Francisco Fed who rose to succeed Bill Dudley. Now, now, people don't understand that it is not the vice chairman of the FOMC who's the second most important person. It is, excuse me, it's not the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. That would have been Stanley Fisher's position. It is a vacant position. But the second most powerful position is that of the New York Fed president, who is also the vice chairman of the FOMC. So if Jay Powell comes down with the flu, it is John Williams who is running that committee. And this is an individual who was raised under Janet Yellen as the subprime bubble was blowing on the West Coast. He assumed the position after she moved on to the board and, and a higher position. And he oversaw the San Francisco Fed when the Wells Fargo scandal was building and finally erupted. So it's very curious to me, and really the only black eye that I have for Jay Powell right now is that he instituted a pure academic with very little in the way of banking and regulation sophistication. And the only person who's ever admitted on record that he didn't have a Bloomberg terminal in his office, this is John Williams. Why would that person be appointed to head the New York Fed when, as you point out, financial market intelligence should be front and center for the FOMC at all times, which tells you, and I'm sorry for getting in the weeds, that really one of the most important and influential individuals inside the entire system right now is Simon Potter. And Simon Potter runs the New York Markets desk, which feeds all of its intelligence from the broker-dealer community to the FOMC. I like the weeds a little bit. Let's continue down there just a uh, path because you're talking about how the New York Fed is influential because of their position on the FOMC, the Open Market Committee, which helps maintain the interest rate policies of the buy and sell of securities. Let's take that a step further on the current policy of the balance sheet reduction of the Fed. So the Fed has been criticized for expanding its balance sheet, keeping interest rates low for a long period of time. Ms. Yellen set the path of the balance sheet unwind, or at least the process to and the path which uh, the Fed is projected to follow of unwinding that balance sheet. So currently, they're taking down approximately $40 billion a month in securities or letting them roll off the balance sheet, not actually truly selling them in the marketplace. And they're going to $50 billion a month starting October, which they say they'll last for the next couple of years. What do you think about this balance sheet reduction, the pace of it, the size of it, and ultimately the implications it has for the overall bond market? Well, I, you know, I think it is the great unknown. Michael Hartnett at B of A Merrill put out what I consider to be a seminal report in 2017 that basically said, this is our year. This is our $2 trillion year of global quantitative easing. What people don't understand is that in October 2014, 
when the Fed stopped growing its balance sheet and just moved on to a reinvestment pure policy, that there was a hockey stick movement in global QE and that the pace of QE actually picked up. So 2017 was obviously the year of complacency and record number of days that the VIX was south of 10, et cetera. But it should be with a global QE run rate of $2 trillion. This was Lehman and AIG blowing up every single month. This was DEFCON 1 record levels of global QE in 2017. Not that we would have ever known that the world was blowing up and that we were at code red, but we were. But that explains the markets. In 2018, as long as Draghi doesn't blink at the European Central Bank and truly follows through with the ECB taper, global QE will be cut in half. So I think it's dangerous to look at quantitative tightening as it pertains just to the Fed's balance sheet in a vacuum, because what happens globally carries implications for the global bond market. And I think that why we have witnessed this effective de facto 3% ceiling on the 10-year is that every time that is breached, a country goes down. In fact, this is one of the things that I'm writing about for my current weekly is taking a tour around the world and exploring what countries could be at risk because of quantitative tightening, because of the Bank of Japan's inadvertent tapering. They're not doing it willingly. They're doing it because market functionality in Japan has been impinged. I'm trying to look and see what this entire dynamic implies because of this gigantic move to dollar funding throughout so much of the world. Look, Nigeria floated a 30-year bond. Kazakhstan was able to access the sovereign bond market for the first time. Ukraine's a ticking time bomb. But again, all of this comes down to liquidity or the lack thereof. And this pertains to QT. And in June of 2012, Jay Powell was very hesitant of talk of QE3 on the record because he wanted a cogent, articulate exit strategy due to the potential disruption in the bond market when the tapering and the shrinking of the balance sheet finally started to occur. You couldn't have a better man at the helm right now who has an understanding of the broad implications for credit markets and God knows what for contagion because we don't know. A lot of people, I think, miss the idea that as we tapered bond purchases, uh, or at least the Federal Reserve did, and then ultimately got out of the quantitative easing business, the baton was passed to the BOJ and the ECB, and it completely offset more than actually what we were buying uh, as they stepped in. But one thing that uh, as they started the, the quantitative tightening or the unwind of the balance sheet is that the ECB, I mean, was going full bore still as well, along with the BOJ. I mean, they were buying 60 billion euro a month. It finally just subsided to 30 billion a month in July, which by the way, that 30 billion euros that they were buying, that incremental, the difference between 60 and 30 is essentially offset by the Fed uh, letting 40 billion a month go into the market. And then they, they started to cross paths at this point. But by next year, as you mentioned, assuming Draghi can go through with the tapering, Essentially, you only have the BOJ left in the QE game. And as you mentioned, too, we're not even sure they're going to stay in that. So is 2019 the year where we actually get free, Marcus? If you look at the People's Bank of China, they had $5.7 trillion on their balance sheet when it peaked out as well. And they're running around and gathering up nuts for the winter themselves because their debt market is the biggest black box on planet Earth. But people don't appreciate that PBOC had QE going that made us blush. 
Right, exactly. And so uh, where does this all end? You know, what, what is the, the view that um, how this balance sheet, is it just that we always expand balance sheets now when we have a crisis? Is it ultimately we target inflation to get rid of some of this debt? What do you see with your pragmatist hat on as being the end game? You know, it's so hard to say, look, we've got $250 trillion of debt rolling around According to the IIF right now, it's such a massive number that the deflationary impetus will remain present because you've got to service all of this debt that's occurred, the incremental debt that's piled on since 2007. The assumption, if, if you talk to any traditional central banker, the assumption is that QE is a permanent tool that can be deployed. You know, I have my doubts. But it it really does remain to be seen how effective QE can be come the next crisis, because we could have the ECB heading into a situation where they hit recession with negative interest rates. This is not your grandfather's going into recession, global recession cycle anymore. It really is. But again, to answer your question, the assumption is that they will just roll out more QE to address whatever the next crisis is going to be. I seriously have my doubts. Hey Daniel, I, I wanted to get one question. And I know you have to, to jump off pretty soon before we get into Sherman Says. So you mentioned earlier about uh, Stanley Fisher's resignation, and it got me to thinking about the so-called independence or autonomy that the Fed is supposed to have uh, from the government. But on the backdrop, we have, what is it, three or four empty seats now on the Board of Governors that the president appoints so I just wonder, at what point does the autonomy disappear? Or is there going to be any type of autonomy, given the fact that Trump could theoretically appoint four board members, uh, board of governors, sorry, on the FOMC? Well, I'm hoping that there is a semblance of check and balance associated with whomever is, is nominated. What happens with the midterms is anybody's guess at this point, but I, I don't think you're able to force somebody onto the FOMC unless there's a, a magnificent handing over of majority power to the Republicans after the midterms. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but Lael Brainerd is staying on. The Fed right now does have the ability to form a quorum. So there's still adequate warm bodies to maintain the independence when it comes to monetary policymaking. Filling those positions obviously is not near as easy as it was hoped to be. Who would want to step into the board right now because of what they're going to be facing. It was curious to me that the media, they really only focused on the first half of Trump's quote in a recent interview that he gave that stated that he didn't like Jay Powell's policies and he doesn't like rising interest rates. But he finished the quote by saying that he's a good person and I'll let him do what he's going to do. So I liken Powell, who once worked for a dollar salary for a year to educate the Congress on the perils of the U.S. defaulting on its debt. I liken him to William McChesney Martin, who was the longest serving Fed chair in its 100 plus year history, who told multiple presidents where they could go put their ideas. And I, I think that Jay Powell, again, because he doesn't have a political axe to burn, he doesn't have some model that he needs to prove. I'm hoping that he can be as independent as he needs to be. And again, Powell was the person who spearheaded Williams being put into the New York Fed. And for better or for worse, Williams will hold the line against any politicking if it comes to that. 
I, and I got to jump in with one more question since you give us more time here. You'd mentioned about uh, lecturing the Congress or enlightening them on the uh, possibility of default. What do you think about the latest fiscal policies that Congress pushed through last year? Again, tax cuts sound great in theory, both at the corporate and individual level. But uh, what do you think it actually does to Fed policy at this point as you get this new stimulus out there, this creation of more dollars into the system, uh, running deficits that look like they're going to approach 4 to 5% of GDP, and that's what absent there being a recession. These are in good times, supposedly boom times. What do you think that that ultimately forces the Fed's hand? Do they see more inflation coming from this perspective of weakening the dollar, perhaps getting higher interest rates out there? How do you kind of balance all of that, that a kind of year eight or so of this expansion decided to now really focus on fiscal policy as trying to drive the growth engine? Well, look, obviously it had some effect. And some of that's been largely offset by the tariffs, by the way. But it certainly has not spurred any kind of capital expenditure boom that we might have been hoping for. And if anything, it's made the ability for interest rate hikes to resonate to be kind of, you know, the tree that falls in the forest that nobody hears. So it really has stunted the ability of Jay Powell to quiet animal spirits using rate hikes because you've got this mass of liquidity surging into the system. Powell might have been trying to reduce the amount of go-go juice and fiscal policy came in right behind it and, and really made the Fed's ability to tighten policy impotent. So there's more of a battle to fight going forward. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens. I don't like to see at this stage in a cycle fiscal policy rolled out. I think it should have been infrastructure spending because that would have been something that provided long-term economic benefit and jobs as opposed to just being something that could be repatriated and, and, and put into share buybacks. Anything that increases the inequality divide, which is effectively what the tax reform will do. And again, this is not a political statement in any way, shape or form, but anything that increases the inequality divide makes the Fed's job that much more difficult. Yeah, well, like you said, who really wants to step into these positions today, given the the amount of uncertainty ahead and and really the challenges with uh, being one of those representatives out there? Yeah, I mean, I live in the great state of Texas. So where I live, you know, it's hard to convince somebody to willingly step right into a cow patty. Yeah, I have seen your reference out there for the bumper stickers that say, don't California my Texas. So I know there's a lot of folks here that are talking about moving out. So uh, I'm not encouraging them to go your direction. But thanks um, to you today, Danielle DiMartino Booth. We really appreciate you coming here and uh, talking with us. But one thing before we let you leave, we want to um, introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. And uh, hopefully we'll play along with our audio Roshar test. Sherman says... So the way that Sherman Says works is I will provide a term and hopefully you'll provide a, a response to it. And what I do is I alternate between uh, you and Mr. Sherman. And I will start with Jeff first with the Fed. Hiking. Recession. Imminent. Inflation. Peaking. Turkish lira. Canary. Favorite city. Lisbon. Hometown. San Antonio. GDP. Accelerating. Fiscal deficit. Ballooning. Public speaking. Fun. PhDs. Boring. Okay. Well, that, I think that's a great one to end it on there. So once again, thank you, Danielle DiMartino Booth. We really appreciate it. As she mentioned on the show today, you can check out her daily, The Daily Feather. That's 
accessible out there. Uh, maybe Jay Powell's not receiving it yet. Maybe we can help subsidize a copy towards him. But again, you can catch us out there on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and DoubleLine.com. Once again, thank you, Danielle. We really appreciate your insights and uh, look forward to more of your uh, musings out there in various publications. Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double-Line Capital.